0: This episode is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author chris lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 144. Hello, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So, let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 2 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you missed last week's episode be sure to go back and listen before continuing on with this installment. Also, remember that this is the sequel to Things Unseen, so if you haven't read that book yet, you can find it for sale on Amazon and Audible. Finally, the end of this chapter contains some explicit adult content, so if you're listening with kids in the room, you might want to put on headphones for this one. And now, here's the story. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and Read by Chris Lester Chapter 2 What are you looking at? Catherine Katane glared back at the bulging black eyes of the swoop jockey beside her. The little theriomorph ducked his head in submission, his scaly tail curling up against his pudgy body. Sorry, ma'am. Kate turned away and checked her instrument panel again. Come on, get this race started already. The organizers seem to have their heads up their asses tonight. It's just... Kate returned her glare to its former recipient. Yeah, what? The little man's rodent nose twitched flipping his whiskers back and forth. You're Kathleen Kittredge, he said, sounding odd. Kate sat back on her saddle. Sometimes, yeah. On the track, they call me something else. The swoopy nodded. Kill Mama Kill. Kind of a dark handle for somebody who helps people. An image flashed in Kate's picture-perfect memory. A blonde woman in a black bodysuit a ragged and bloody hole where her face used to be. Kate looked away again. Doesn't mean it's not accurate, Shorty. The rat morph went silent for a moment. Kate tried to push the image out of her head, to focus on the race in front of her. You helped my cousin a while back, the little man said. Bobby Delane? He was pushing for Red Jake over in the East Side Projects. Said you got him out before the Blues took down Jake's outfit. Kate remembered a sad-eyed, flea-bedraggled rat morph living in those projects, caught between a small-time rain dealer and a life with no good options. Or so he thought, until Kate gave him a couple of useful phone numbers and a ride to a shelter on the far end of town. Bobby got himself out, Kate said quietly. I just showed him the exit. Pause. How's he doing? Lots better. Been clean two years now living with my sister's family and going to night school. Kate closed her eyes, nodded. Good. That's good. That's down to you, ma'am. I don't know why a private eye cared what happened to a little junkie from the projects, but my cousin would be dead or in jail if you hadn't. The swoopy extended a hand, palm upward. I'm Lyle Delane. On behalf of my whole family, thank you. Kate stared at the hand for a long moment, then placed her own hand over it, gripping the man's slender forearm in the ancient gesture of friendship. Sure, she said, but don't think I'm going any easier on you in this race because of it. Lyle grinned a buck-toothed rodent smile. Wouldn't dream of it. The announcer's voice finally sounded over the megaphone. All racers at their marks. Kate leaned forward again and slapped shut the visor on her helmet. The head-up display drew tracings of blue and green light across her vision, showing her speed, altitude, position, turbine RPMs, and fuel supply. More data came up as the swoop's onboard computer synced with the wireless transmitters surrounding the event, showing her the path of the race and the positions of the other racers. Right now, of course, there was a string of glowing dots massed along the starting line. Kate gripped the handlebars, put both feet on the rocker pedals, and waited. A red light appeared in the center of her head-up display, accompanied by a low warning chime. Ready. The light winked out, replaced by a yellow one. Set. Kate gripped the brake handles and pegged both rocker pedals. The hum of the turbines grew to a howl. The yellow light blinked to green. Go! Kate released the brakes and shot off the starting line like a rocket. Lyle and his swoop vanished behind her. So did everyone else. She was out in front, running her turbines at ten percent over Redline, flashing over the concrete at two hundred kph and barely a meter of altitude. Five seconds later, she was in the tunnels. The underbelly of Metamore City was a tangled, twisting warren of alleys, vaulted tunnels, and underground chambers— weaving through the bellies of the massive towers that defined the city skyline. Most of them were abandoned after dark, by civilized folk at any rate, and they made ideal courses for the grey-market, quasi-legal sport of swoop racing. They could also be deadly. Kate gave her complete attention to the track, deftly guiding her little mount through a rapid succession of dark, narrow curves, The swoop's front control vanes trembled as she cut around the turns, and she varied the speed of the left and right turbines to add an extra bit of yaw to the swoop's movement, the equivalent of drifting on a ground car. She rode at the ragged limits of her craft's abilities. And she was winning. This was what Kate lived for. On the track, she could forget about being a cop, forget about paperwork and politics and the assorted daily bullshit of existence. There was nothing but the roar of the wind whipping against her, the flash of the city's innards rushing past, and a simple competition with her fellow swoopies. The track was her place to let go, to wash away problems and worries in a euphoric rush of adrenaline. But tonight something was wrong. Tonight the release would not come. There was a tightness in her chest, the same tightness she had felt off and on for weeks now, She took the track as fast as she had ever dared to, but the familiar high was gone. In its place was a growing agitation, a restless anxiety with no source that she could name. Like a deer desperately trying to outrun the wolves, Kate pushed her swoop to go even faster. Racers now approaching the halfway mark. The announcer's voice came over the radio, sounding tinny in Kate's helmet-mounted speakers. In first place, with a commanding 200-meter lead, Kill Mama Kill. Flash. The woman without a face lay sprawled on the floor of the parking garage. Kate shuddered. Sweat broke out over her whole body. Flash. The blonde woman fired at one of Kate's allies, hitting her in the shoulder. Kate, only five meters away, stood unseen under an arcane veil, taking careful aim. No, Kate whispered. Her hands trembled and the shaking traveled down through the swoop's controls until the little craft was rattling along with her. Her chest felt like someone was sitting on it. She couldn't get enough air. Flash. The blonde woman fired twice more, emptying her magazine. She ejected it, then reached down for another at her belt, turning her back to Kate. Kate squeezed the trigger twice. A roar of thunder. A wash of red. The turn came up out of nowhere. Kate swerved, clamped down on the brakes. Too late. The left control vane struck the concrete wall. For a terrifying moment, the world seemed to freeze. Kate was suddenly very aware that she was sitting in a saddle on top of a flying engine, traveling at over 200 kilometers per hour. Then, with a loud snap, the control vane snapped free of the swoop. The world spun, and Kate felt her body thrown clear of the swoop, A shimmering orb of yellow light sprang up around her, and then the ground rushed up. She tumbled, arms and legs flailing, as the shield spell bounced her along like a giant rubber ball, every impact deforming the shield and sapping her kinetic energy. It felt like being beaten with sandbags by an angry giant. At last she came to a stop, and then the yellow orb winked out, leaving her in darkness on the floor of the tunnel. The radio crackled in her ears. Racer down. Kill Mama Kill is down, the announcer said. Medics to marker 373. All racers watch out for the crash at 373. Kill Mama Kill, stay low. Help is coming. Kate barely heard him. Terror gripped her, unnameable and overwhelming. Her heart pounded, and she still felt like she couldn't breathe. She pulled off her helmet and tried to gasp for air, but her diaphragm didn't seem to be working right. She couldn't see anything. Even lying flat on her back, her head swam with vertigo. Oh gods, I can't breathe. I'm going to die. Light appeared in the tunnel in the direction she'd come from, but before she could decide whether to wave for help, the other racer flashed over her and disappeared down the tunnel. A dozen more came in the seconds that followed, all of them steering as clear of Kate as the tunnel's dimensions allowed. She watched them swarm past like enormous, angry fireflies, and then they were gone. All but one. Behind the pack, one swoopy came slowly and carefully up the tunnel, his headlights sweeping back and forth over the ground. When the light fell on Kate, he straightened out and pulled up to a stop near the tunnel wall. A moment later someone was at her side. She couldn't see who it was. A little hand took hers, held it gently. Easy, a man's voice said in low, calming tones. Easy. Breathe. Breathe, ma'am. Kate tried to speak. Couldn't. You're okay, the voice said. You're safe. The medics will be here soon. You're gonna be all right. Just breathe. In. Out. Kate gripped his hand tightly. She closed her eyes, tried to focus on her chest. In. Out. Something released inside her, and air rushed into her lungs in a ragged gasp. In. Good, the calming voice said. Hold it. Focus on it. Now, breathe out like you're blowing up a balloon. The man made a whooshing sound with his own breath and Kate found herself imitating it. (sighs) Out. Now, breathe in again, through your nose this time. A long hiss of inspired air. Kate breathed in along with it. She wasn't sure how long she sat there. In. Out. In. Out. In. Out. But gradually, the nameless terror faded. Her heartbeat slowed, and her limbs stopped shaking. When she opened her eyes again, dim emergency lights lit the tunnel, and a man and two women knelt beside her with bags of emergency medical gear. Beside them was the little theriomorph Lyle Delane, still gently holding her hand. Kate looked up at him, surprised. He smiled, crinkling his rat-like muzzle. I told you you'd be all right, ma'am. She took a deep breath, then let it out again. I guess you did. The medics started doing a lot of things to her then, checking her heart rate and breathing, checking her for broken bones, shining lights into her eyes. At last, they helped her to her feet, and half led, half carried her to the nearest exit. Along the way, they passed the tangled wreck of metal and fiberglass that had been Kate's swoop. She looked at it and felt... Nothing. Hollow. A couple of minutes later, they were in an open plaza at dusk level, the first layer of skyways above the street. The towers stretched like canyons of glass and steel all around her, and three more layers of skyways crisscrossed the air above, but Kate finally felt like she could breathe easily again. The medics sat her down in the back bumper of their van. Not a real ambulance, not for a street-level swoop race and wrapped her in a heavy woolen blanket, though she didn't feel cold. Someone brought her a bottle of water, and she drank. After a while, a skimmer pulled up next to the plaza. It was black and red, and looked sleek, fast, and predatory. A man got out, a tall, lithe, and handsome fellow, with pale skin and short, stylish black hair. He wore no shirt in the warm, humid night air but the beautifully sculpted muscles of his abs and shoulders needed no further adornment. His amber eyes were tight and worried as he approached. Is she all right? he asked the nearest medic. They told me there was an accident. She'll be fine, the medic said. Her suit's crash protection system worked perfectly. She'll be bruised all over, but that's it. The man came over to Kate, stood in front of her. When she didn't respond, he gently took her chin in his hand and raised it until she was looking into his eyes. Hey, you okay? It didn't matter what his body looked like. Kate looked into those eyes, and there was no confusing him for anyone else. John. Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine. His look said he didn't believe it. Let's get you out of here. He looked at the medic. She's free to go? Of course, the medic said. Nobody here is going to tell the police about this. John's lip twisted up at the corner. Right. Can't have any police finding out what goes on down here. That would be a disaster. He helped Kate to her feet and led her to the skimmer. She left the blanket behind. Kate slid into the bucket seat on the passenger side and strapped herself in without argument. John did likewise on the driver's side and slipped on the control headset. The skimmer's head-up display came to life on the windscreen, and John directed the vehicle out onto the road. The skimmer obeyed his mental commands through the headset, but John kept his hands on the backup control yoke in front of him. So, he said, what happened down there? Kate looked out her window. She chewed on her lower lip. I don't know. One second I was in the lead, and the next. She shook her head. Boom. John let the silence hang for a moment. Want to talk about it? Kate heard the unspoken question behind the words, even if John was too kind to say it. You've been doing this for years. You've never crashed like this before. What was different this time? The dead woman flashed in front of her memory again. No. She said. They merged onto an expressway and began heading east, the little skimmer darting nimbly through the slower traffic. John turned on the stereo and covered the silence with classic rock and roll, leaving Kate alone with her thoughts. Kate didn't want to think. She didn't want to replay the crash in her head, or other things. She didn't want to think about her job with the Metamore City Police Department a job from which she'd been on administrative leave for over a month now. She didn't want to think about her increasingly frustrating appointments with the department's staff psychologist, which were somehow supposed to make her ready to return to work, but never seemed to accomplish anything. Shit. John? Yes? I've got to go to another psych appointment tomorrow morning, and I don't have a ride. He nodded. Not a problem? What time should I pick you up? Kate hesitated. Actually, maybe I could just spend the night at your place? The look John gave her made her blush down to her nipples. Tempting. But are you sure you're up for it, Catherine? You did just walk away from a swoop accident. Kate swallowed the lump in her throat. Yeah. And after that, there's no way I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. Not without help. She looked down at her hands, her face flushing even hotter. Please, John, don't leave me alone. Not after this. He reached over and took her hand, rubbed his thumb gently over the skin at the base of her wrist. She shivered. You won't be alone, he promised. John took an interchange and headed for the higher levels of the city. As he drove, he moved his hand to her thigh, where he felt along the zippered seam of her racing suit. The suit was made for protection, not for intimacy, but it covered Kate's body like a second skin, and that meant it had certain accommodations for putting it on more easily. And, more relevantly, for taking it off. John's hand followed the zipper down to her ankle, found the slider, and slowly pulled it upward, exposing her leg from calf to hip. The skimmer's air conditioning made goosebumps on her skin. Or maybe that was the feel of John's hand as he slid his way up and under the fabric to touch her inner thigh. Kate's heart was beating hard again, but this time there was no fear. She placed her hand over his and guided it further up. John's fingertips brushed lightly along her lower lips, teasing her. She moaned, and she didn't give a damn if it sounded desperate or needy. She did need this. She was desperate. John continued to play with her for the rest of the drive, slowly stoking her arousal higher and higher. By the time they reached 4-9275 North Teffen Street, Kate was nearly beyond the realm of rational thought. John pulled into a staff parking space, settled the skimmer on its landing skids, then unfastened Kate's belt and dragged her bodily out through the driver's side door. Kate gasped. At a 180 centimeters, and with a sizable amount of lean muscle, she hadn't found many lovers who could pick her up. John lifted her like it was no great effort. Kate wrapped her legs around his waist and kissed him hard. He returned the kiss with equal fervor, his tongue dancing with hers. And as he did, Kate felt his body begin to shift. She opened her eyes and watched, savoring the changes. His skin turned from pale Kitchlander pink to a rich brick red. His ears elongated into points. A pair of curling ram's horns grew out from his forehead. A long, prehensile tail reached around his body and wrapped itself sinuously around her exposed leg. The tail's tip brushed playfully against the lips of her sex. "God's damn it, John," Kate gasped. "Either get us inside or fuck me right here." John chuckled, a low and dangerous sound that sent a thrill through her. Still carrying her with one hand under her ass, John walked over to the back door and let them in to the temple of hedonism. The door opened onto the locker room, where the priests of the fertility goddess Aspira would put on clothes before heading out into the world of the unbelievers. Now that they were inside, Kate saw no reason to wait to get him into the proper dress code. She hopped out of his arms, knelt in front of him, and unfastened his jeans, then pulled them down with one decisive tug. John's cock was everything Kate could have asked for in an incubus, and no matter how many times they slept together, she still had to stop and admire it. It was long and thick and beautiful, a darker shade of his brick-red complexion, and she could always, always count on it to be hard when she needed it. She grasped the base of his shaft and smiled up at him, then took him into her mouth. She rolled her tongue around the tip and breathed in his musk, man-scent mixed with cinnamon and sandalwood. She sucked and pumped him with her hand, and he moaned, his cock growing even harder. She rose to her feet, grinning, and quickly stripped out of her racing suit and underwear as John dealt with his shoes and the pants around his ankles. With both of them now naked, Kate put her arms around his neck and hoisted herself up into his arms again. She kissed him hard. Why don't you use that super-strength of yours and take us to a bed? She purred. John grinned back. Whatever the lady wants. He took her to his room in the priest's quarters, where he laid her down on a luxuriously soft king-sized bed strewn with pillows. Kate wasn't interested in any further preliminaries. As soon as he climbed atop her, she grabbed his cock and guided him inside. She closed her eyes and gave herself over to sensation. The delicious fullness. The sparks of pleasure that ran from pussy to clit to nipples to even the tips of her fingers and toes. Orgasms grew, crested, and subsided, four times in succession, each one stronger than the last. And each time she came, Kate felt something else, too. From a spot two finger-widths below her navel— In the mystic center, where she bound mana to her life force, Kate felt herself opening up to John, a lowering of barriers. John's aura opened as well, revealing the dark, bottomless hunger within him. Kate sensed it, knew it for what it was, but she was not afraid. She let her power flow into him, feeding him, sustaining him. She knew what it was like to be empty inside nor did feeding an incubus come without benefits. As the power flowed out of her, her brain's pleasure center exploded into overdrive. A rush of euphoria flooded through her, washing away any semblance of coherent thought. She had no idea how long it went on. It didn't matter. She trusted John not to take too much. John groaned, both with his climax and with the pleasure of feeding on a willing companion. He closed his aura, shutting off the flow, then drew out his cock and settled on the bed beside her. In the aftermath, Kate felt the euphoria fade into a warm, gentle bliss. She felt detached from her own body and emotions, floating, peaceful, pleasantly numb. And there, at last, she thought no more about death or destruction— With John's warm, comforting presence beside her, Catherine Cotain finally, mercifully, fell asleep. And that's the end of Chapter 2. Come back next time when Kate has a visit with the police psychologist. You might have heard of him. His name is Jared Tamlin. That's coming up next week. Julian Barnes said, The writer must be universal in sympathy, and an outcast by nature. Only then can he see clearly. So, follow me to the outskirts of town. It's time for the weekly writing report. I wrote 1,162 words this week, over the course of two hours— For an average of 581 words per hour. I wrote on three out of seven days this week. If you've been a long time listener of this show, you know that I've been having a hard time getting back into a daily writing routine after finishing The Lost in the Least. I've tried dipping back into several different projects and wrote a few short stories, but nothing grabbed and held my attention. I kept thinking about the next book in Kate's story, though, so this week I've decided to follow that inclination. I've started the development work for my next Metamore City novel. As I've said before on this show, I'm fond of the Dramatica theory of storytelling. This is a system that was developed by screenwriters, but I found it useful for planning my last few novels. Dramatica uses story as a metaphor for the human mind trying to work through a problem. Each major character represents a viewpoint or perspective on the problem, one of those warring voices inside our heads that tries to sway us in one direction or another. For example, in Making the Cut, Fiona was the voice of logic, while Rebecca represented emotion, Sasha was the voice of faith, and Callie was the voice of cynicism. Each of these perspectives is important, because they ensure that the story mind is considering the question from all possible angles. This week I started mapping out the story mind for the new novel, which is called None Shall Dwell Within. I realized that in this story I actually have two separate story minds for two separate subplots, one of which is focused on Kate and the other is focused on Jared. Kate and Jared represent opposite sides of the same story question, and by looking at both sides in parallel, I can get a deeper exploration of the story's themes and ideas. This is a valuable thing to realize this early in the process, because it'll shape how I structure the story, and how I flip back and forth between these two plot lines as the book progresses. And now, the feedback. Eric of Georgia writes, Dear Chris, First, I wanted to say that I geeked out a bit hearing you read my previous feedback. You even make my writing sound good. I swear, if phone books are still a thing, you could read one and it would be awesome. Today, in the lead-up to St. Patrick's Day, my daughter's daycare had a quote-unquote leprechaun show up and make a mess of the classrooms. I guess the idea was to show off just what a trickster leprechauns can be. I think the teachers were expecting the kids to be amused and excited, but instead they all seemed to be really bothered by someone coming into their classroom and making a mess. Probably a good thing that they learn not to trust Fay. At dinner, my daughter kept asking me more and more about leprechauns, and I'm trying to tell her everything kid-friendly I can remember about how they are tricky little rules lawyers. My wife and I could tell she was still bothered by the whole leprechaun thing. At that point, I did what any parent would do, and told her that our dog was very good at keeping leprechauns away, and he has never let a single one in our house. That almost worked, but she still wasn't quite okay with leprechauns, so I just said that if it got to be too much for our dog to handle, I would call my friend Janus Starson of the Lothanasi, and he could put up a few wards to keep any other leprechauns away. My daughter, very interested in this friend I mentioned, asked me if I know Janus from work. I laughed a little and told her no, to which she declared that he works at home. Knowing what I know about Janus's living arrangements from a Lightbringer Carol, I had to kind of agree, and I told my daughter that he lives far away, in a place called Metamore City. Well, I think that finally put her mind at ease, so I guess the Lothanasi just scored another victory against Fae Incursions. I should probably wait a few more years before I tell her what Janus did to Santa Claus. That sounds like a good idea to me, Eric. I'm glad the Lightbringers were able to make your daughter feel more secure. Hopefully this has taught her daycare teachers an important lesson about the risks of dealing with fairies. If they continue to have any trouble, remember that a ring of salt and iron nails spread around the building is an excellent deterrent to fae incursions. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash lester. the fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press.